Think about all of the churches that are meeting across these United States today and in countries around the world. How many of them are filled with Christians who are expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to come back soon, to come back quickly? My mom grew up in a church, her friends invited her to, from the time that she was seven years old through high school. Never once that she remembers having heard about the second coming of Jesus Christ in that church. Can you imagine? A church that doesn't talk about the coming of Christ. She finally heard about it as an adult, young married, from her brother-in-law who grew up in this church. She was kind of mad that she'd been to church for years and no one told her that Christ was coming back. So she decided, she decided I've got to get to a church that teaches the Bible. She found a church and the next day she got saved. And she went to a church where people were expecting Jesus Christ to come back. Mark chapter 13 in your Bibles. The second coming of Christ is the most important event in history and is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I dare say if a church does not talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, they are not preaching the gospel. The gospel is not just the first coming of Jesus Christ. The gospel is also the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is called the blessed hope. The blessed hope. There is hope for this created earth. There is hope for created humanity. And that hope came and died on the cross, but he is not dead. He is alive. Hope is alive. And hope is coming back. He's near. He's at the door. Are you ready? Have you been warned? Have you been told? Have you taken action? Are you awake and alert to the hour that we live in? Or are you sleeping along with the world? The Olivet Discourse here in Mark chapter 13 is the second most important passage about the second coming of Christ in the Bible. Of course, the book of Revelation is the most important The grand central station of all of the prophecy of Scripture comes together in the book of Revelation, all those train tracks meeting with a full unfolding of the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, coming on the clouds of glory whom every eye will see. Can you imagine a a church that doesn't talk about, doesn't read, doesn't preach about the book of Revelation? Now here I've been in the church for 14, 15 years, and I haven't yet preached the book of Revelation. I'm working my way up to it. Started with Isaiah, spent some time in Daniel, preached the Olivet Discourse now twice, taught First and Second Thessalonians, which is the, the parts of Paul's letters that deal with these subjects. So we're getting there. We're getting to the book of Revelation, sometime hopefully in the next 10 years if the Lord should tarry. 
But here we are this morning in the second most important passage about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been working our way up to the best part of it. Now, in order to really understand and to appreciate what we're going to be looking at this morning, I think it's good to review quickly by reading the opening verses of chapter 13. So start there in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Follow along as I read it for you. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Everything that you need to know in order to stand in the truth, everything that you need in order to persevere in trial, everything that you need to be able to be aware of what is happening at the end of this age, God has told us in advance. Now, I will be the first to admit that there's still a number of things about the Olivet Discourse that are difficult for me to understand. But I'm not going to worry too much about that this morning. 
I'm going to rejoice this morning in the things that I do understand about the book of Revelation and about the Olivet Discourse. And I'm going to try to exhort you based upon what is clear in the text. Don't worry too much about what is left to understand. I'll keep working on that. I'll keep pursuing that. But let's not lose sight of what we do know, right? That's important. Now, I want you to be reminded that the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation are covering the same material from a little different perspective and angle. This morning, I hope to get from verse 24 down to the end of the chapter. And so that'll be a challenge, but uh, we'll see what we can do. Now, the Olivet Discourse, I've got the references here from the Gospel of Matthew because that's the parallel passage. I didn't change the chart for the Gospel of Mark, but they follow the same outline. And so you see that the Olivet Discourse is parallel to the first six seals in the book of Revelation. That once God starts to unfold the future in the book of Revelation, we see the parallels between the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they are called, the white, the red, the black, and the pale horses there described in the opening verses of Revelation chapter 6, with exactly the same type of things that Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse, about the false Christ, about the war, about the famine, and about the death there in Jesus' talk. And then, after talking about the horsemen of the apocalypse, Jesus here tells the disciples in Mark 13, verses 9 through 13, about how they're going to be persecuted, about how they're going to be martyred, brother's going to deliver up brother, children, their father, and so on. And so that martyrdom also has a parallel there in Revelation chapter 6 with the fifth seal. And then also the sixth seal in the book of Revelation corresponds with where we're going next in our reading and our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning in verses 24 and following. So I want you to see that the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse are running in the same tracks here and they're leading up to the same blessed event and that is the coming of Christ. Now most of what here is here in Mark chapter 13 is, is dire. You've got famine, persecution, death, all kinds of evil and lies and yet that's that darkest hour right before the coming of the dawn. That the blessed hope comes upon the tale of things getting about as bad as they can get in this world, as we just read, that there's going to be a tribulation that has such severity that there's never been anything like it and there never will be anything like it again. And it's when God allows things to get to be their worst that he comes in order to save the day. And that's, of course, how we like to tell our stories, right? When we're telling our stories, everything's going bad, it looks like the heroes are doomed, and then somehow, some way, they're saved. And that's the way it is with every good story, and they're borrowing from God, who's got a good story about everything getting about as bad as it can get before we are saved. And so, Jesus says, be on your guard, be ready, don't be led astray, and keep looking for the coming of Christ. So let's read about that coming of Christ here in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. That's where we're starting here. We're getting to the good part now. But, it says in verse 24, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, 
and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So there we have it. In verse 26, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So let's dig in to these verses about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want you to know about the return of Christ is what it's not going to be like. Because right before those verses that we just read, Jesus had warned that during that time of great tribulation in the previous paragraph, that there were going to come false Christs and false prophets. You see that in verse 22. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you can read about the coming of the false prophet. There will be many false prophets, but there's going to be one false prophet above the others. And you can read about the coming of the Antichrist, the false Christ, There's going to be many, but there's going to be one that is greater than all the others. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, all the way up through Revelation chapter 16, gives us insight into the false prophet and the false Christ. And also, you can read about this same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, let's do so. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 once again. Jesus has told us ahead of time about the coming of the Antichrist and about the coming of the false prophet, and he's given us a lot of detail about these people because they are going to be extremely convincing, and most people are going to be led astray. Jesus says that if it was possible, even the elect would be led astray by these false prophets and false Christ. Now, thankfully, he says, if possible, which gives us that idea that it's not possible, but that means that we still have to be paying attention. We still have to be alert. We still have to be discerning. We can't just trust in God's going to take care of us. We've got to do what God told us to do if we want to be cared for by God. And so here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul references this same thing. False Christ, same false prophet. The coming of the lawless one, the lawless one is what he's called here, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. There's the signs and the wonders that are going to mislead. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see the difference here between the the true Christianity and the false Christianity? The false Christianity has pleasure in unrighteousness. The false Christianity does not delight in the truth, but they're being blown and tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men and deceitful scheming. People come along and they have just the right sounding mix of what the world wants to hear and what people know that the Bible says and they they market that and sell that as peddlers of God's word and they're lulling people to sleep and making them think that they're following Christ when they're really following false leaders. Men who are not following Jesus Christ but are serving their own interests. And that's what's going on in the world and that people are not delighting in the truth 
And so they are being set up. They are being ripened for judgment and that God is going to send this delusion. He's going to give Satan permission to send the Antichrist with amazing miracles and powers and all of these so-called Christians in the world are going to follow after him. They're going to say, this is from God. This is God's work. We feel it. We see it. We know it in our hearts because they don't know the truth and they haven't been paying attention. They're not spiritually alert. They're not spiritually awake. And the deception will be strong. We're told in the book of Revelation that the false prophet will be able to call down fire from heaven in his presence. If I could make a lightning bolt come down from the sky and strike the ground in front of me, that'd be a pretty impressive sign, wouldn't it? Why does God allow someone to do that? Why does God give Satan permission to to give someone that kind of power to lead people astray? Because he's already given them 2,000 years to listen to the truth and know the truth and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they've refused. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the first century and he's been working for 20 centuries since, deluding and deceiving and misleading people with all kinds of false Christs that are in the world. Jesus warned you. He told you this was going to happen. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Is anyone saying it? Is anyone reading it? Is anyone preaching it? They will pay attention to the false prophet and to the false Christs. But we've been warned. And then when Christ comes back, you're not going to have to wonder if he's come back. You're not going to have to say, well, is that the guy the Christ or is he not the Christ? I mean, he's doing some pretty amazing things. He says some pretty amazing things. Maybe he is Christ come back. Christ says, don't. You don't have to wonder. Christ says, when I come back, I won't be on the earth. I'll be in the sky. Is the Antichrist in the sky? Is he riding on the clouds? Does he have the angels of God surrounding him? Then he's not the Christ. Are the fools who have arisen up in the last 20 centuries and who said, I'm I'm the second coming of Jesus. I'm Christ come back. Listen to me. Follow my teachings. Did they come on the clouds? No, they didn't. They're not the Christ. Christ told us ahead of time how he's coming back. And it's not someplace where you have to search for him and say, look, there he is. Here's the Christ. Just look to the sky. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. You don't have to search for him. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. In those days after that tribulation... You come down to verse 26. They will see. And they is referring to everyone in the whole world. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So don't let anyone deceive you. You've been warned. You've been told. The coming of Jesus Christ with great power and glory in the clouds is language that comes from Daniel. Remember, we talked about how Daniel is the background for the Olivet Discourse. Without an understanding of Daniel 7 through 12, you don't understand the Olivet Discourse. You don't understand the book of Revelation. That's the groundwork. That's the foundation for all of this prophecy. Come back with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So Daniel chapter 7 kicks off the second half of Daniel's book, which sadly doesn't get taught enough. We grew up hearing about Daniel in the lion's den, hearing about how God saved Daniel and his friends from the fire. And that's good. Those those are important. But 
Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is the book of Daniel for adults. All right? So now you're out of Sunday school, you're out of kids' class, here's Daniel for you. And it's deep, it's hard, it's difficult. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, as we get this unveiling, this revelation of God's power and glory and dominion and his coming kingdom, Daniel sees in the night visions, we're just jumping into the middle of the chapter there, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The United States empire is crumbling. Who knows how much longer it's going to last. But there's coming a kingdom. There's coming a nation. There's coming an empire that will never be destroyed. It will never fall from within or from without. It's an everlasting kingdom. And it's a, it's a nation, it's a kingdom where there is no abortion. It's a nation and a kingdom where there, there is no lying. There's no corruption. There's no oppression. It's a kingdom and a nation where everyone does what is right out of love for God and who loves one another with the same love that God has shown towards us. And it's coming with a person who rides the clouds of heaven. He's called the Son of Man. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13. Verse 26, the goal of history, our blessed hope, as the writer of Hebrews said, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ to come back? Or are you distracted? Are you caught up with all the cares and the worries of this life? Are you reading the newspapers and listening to the talking heads, wringing your hands and trying to figure out what to do? Christ has told you what to do. You preach the gospel to all creation, make disciples of all the nations, and you look to the sky. You're eagerly waiting for him. Now, when's it going to be? Well, one other thing before I get to when. Look at verse 27. When he comes in the clouds with great power and glory, we can read about that in Revelation 19 if we had time, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. Now that phrase, the elect, that's one that is used here in this chapter of Mark and nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark. He uses it in verse 20 to talk about the elect in verse 22 and then here in verse 27. Now, One of the things I don't know is, is the elect here referring to us? Are we going to go through the first part of the 70th week of Daniel, as it's called? Are we going to see the coming of the Antichrist, the breaking of the treaty, the abomination of desolation? Is that going to be in the newspapers? Will that be sometime in the next 10 years and we'll be here and we'll see that and then Christ is going to come at some point during the second half of this 70th week of Daniel and and is this talking about the rapture in verse 27? That he's going to send out the angels and gather his elect and that's us as part of the rapture, the wonderful appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him? Well, yeah, that's possible. Or are we going to be raptured before 
the 70th week of Daniel, and this is referring to the tribulation saints, the 144,000 who are sealed and protected during that time of great tribulation that Jesus is talking about in the Holy Land as the abomination of desolation tries to wipe them out and Christ comes back and gathers the elect to himself and throws the wicked into the winepress of the wrath of God. Well, that's a possibility too. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, people out there, you people, you might want to know. Well, are we going to be raptured before the, all these events or are we going to have to go through this? I mean, are we going to be martyred like being delivered over to death and, and all that? Maybe. Does that bother you? It shouldn't. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. It's your eternal glory if you get to be a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who endures to the end will be saved. They overcome because they love not their life to death. We love him. So whether we are raptured before or sometime during, whether we're martyrs or whether we're spared all that, I'm not sure. I'd like to know. I really try hard to figure it out. But we know what we need to know. Be faithful. Preach the gospel. Don't be afraid of persecution. And wait for Jesus. Now, notice the timing. In those days, it says in verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That takes us back to our chart here, the signs in heaven. It's in Luke, it's also here in Mark, and it's also recorded in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When the sixth seal is opened, this is exactly what happens. The sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, the stars are falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens are shaken. Well, you can read about that in the book of Revelation. So you see here the parallels between what Jesus told his disciples and then what he unveils in fuller detail and further extent in the book of Revelation. And someday I hope to preach Revelation and then maybe I'll get all this figured out finally. The first in the history of the church, right? Let's talk about verses 28 through 31 then, all right? We're going to move quickly. We've got about 10 minutes left. Let's see if we can get through the application of what Jesus Christ has told us. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I'm not going to go into the difficulty of verse 30. We already spent a lot of time talking about that two weeks ago. And I'd be happy to talk about it some other time with you. But right now, what we're going to focus on is the application. And that is that we need to learn from the parable of the fig tree. Now, I want to clarify, in this instance, the fig tree is not representative of the nation of Israel, and it's not representative of Israel being back in the land or reconstituted as a nation like they were in 1948. Some Christians thought that here the parable of the fig tree meant that within a generation of Israel becoming a nation again, that Christ was going to come back. And there was a book you may have been uh, familiar with back in the 80s, 88 Reasons Why Christ Has to Come Back in 1988. And that was 40 years after 1948 when they became a nation. So, you know, within this generation, Christ is coming back because of the fig tree. No. 
I don't understand how somebody could read Mark chapter 13 where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour and say, well, I think I got the year. Oh, you missed the point, dude. It wasn't just the day or the hour that he was talking about. That's a figure of speech. But the fig tree, it is used in this parable, not because it represents Israel coming back into the land, but because the fig tree was one of a few trees in Israel that was not evergreen. It's a deciduous tree. It loses its leaves. And so the leaves come back in the springtime. Now, most trees in Israel don't do that because of their climate. But the fig tree and a few others are such trees. And we know that the fig tree doesn't represent Israel and that it's here just being an illustration of a tree that loses its leaves and gains them back again each year because Luke adds in his account, and all the trees. So he's not just talking about the fig tree, but he's just talking about trees in general, that once springtime comes and the sap is spreading up through those new branches and then forming those new buds, you look at what's happening on the tree and you know summertime is close. And so Jesus says, I've told you the signs that are leading up to my coming in glory, my gathering of the elect to myself, so that when you see those things happening, you know, okay, now it's going to happen. It's very close. So that's the point of the fig tree. And God wants us to live in readiness, that even though he's given us signs, he's told us these are the events that are going to lead up to the glorious second coming of Christ to judge the world in righteousness and save those who have trusted in him, that he wants us to also know that he's not telling us when it's going to happen. Once we're there, then we'll be able to see signs and be like, okay, it's about to happen. But until these signs happen, we don't really have a clue. And that's why we have to be ready in every generation. Look at how the chapter closes in verse 32 and following. He says, but, and that's in contrast to seeing the signs and knowing that it's about to take place, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is heaven's best kept secret. The angels don't know. The Son of God doesn't know. Only the Father knows. That's, that's quite a remarkable statement. And so anybody who comes along and says, I know, will say, well, you know more than Jesus because Jesus doesn't know. So you need to be on your guard. That's the point here, verse 33. Be on your guard keep awake. I can't stress that enough. I mean, that's what Matthew chapter 25 was all about in our scripture reading, that after Jesus gives the signs of his coming, he's got a whole chapter in Matthew warning people about being ready. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know. It's not just the world that doesn't know. Say, yeah, those people out there, they don't know because they don't believe Jesus' words, they're not paying attention to the signs. No, Jesus says, you don't know. You don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. For you do not know. Who doesn't know? You don't know. When the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly... I'm coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly. And he will find you asleep. And Jesus ends it with this 
what I say to you, the 12 disciples that he's speaking to, well, in this case, the four, you know, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, what I say to you, I say to all my disciples throughout the ages, stay awake, stay awake. Jesus speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation the same message. In Revelation 3.3, he tells the church, Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. How many churches are sleeping? They're singing the hymns. They're listening to preaching. But they are spiritually asleep. They are not ready. They are not expecting. They are not looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. They are not conformed to His holiness. They are not walking in obedience to His commands. Oh, sure, they'll obey any commands that Jesus has that fit in with our culture, that are culturally acceptable. But if there's anything in Jesus' commands that go against what our culture says is good, it's like, well, we don't have to do that. Jesus says, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. He's speaking to the church. I will come against you. The book of Revelation says, I am coming soon. It repeats it over and over again. James, the brother of the Lord, wrote at the end of his letter that the judge is standing right at the door. Christ has commanded you to love one another with the love with which he has loved you. He has commanded you to forbear with one another, to forgive one another, to serve one another. Will he find you doing that if he comes back today? Are you at peace with one another? Are you giving your time to serve one another? God has given you a spiritual gift. What are you doing with it? Have you buried it in the ground? Or are you using it? When the master of the house comes back, will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say to you, you wicked, slothful servant, you did nothing with what I gave you? It's not my exhortation. I didn't come up with this message. You can read it yourself. I've picked on R.T. France in the past here, but he's got a great quote that's relevant to our closing today. It is possible to prepare for the coming of Christ not by calculating its date, but by a life of constant readiness. There will apparently be only two categories of people at the coming of Christ. The prepared and the unprepared. The saved and the lost. The Bible says in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, You may be sure of this, brothers, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
walk as children of light. Sexual immorality should not even be named among us as is proper among saints. Don't think you can pray a prayer and come sit in a church and live your life in contradiction to God's commandments and say, I am saved to keep on going and doing whatever I want. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, my first prayer is for the saints in this church, that you will keep us waiting, you'll keep us watching, you'll keep us alert, that our lamps will be burning bright when the bridegroom comes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My second prayer is for the pastors and the churches all around us, that those who are asleep will wake up before it's too late before the Antichrist comes with the strong delusion of Satan and leads them to destruction. I pray they will wake up. Give us wisdom to know how to warn, to how to love them, the way that Jesus Christ rebuked in those that he loved, like the church at Laodicea. May we have his spirit, not only getting ourselves ready, but urging others to be ready for those dark days of tribulation and the glorious dawn of the kingdom of righteousness. Amen.